Thousands of people have taken part in rallies across France to express outrage at the beheading of a teacher. Sonny Lopati, a teacher in his 40s, brutally murdered. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're watching The Listening Post, working from home. Here are some of the media stories we're covering this week. A brutal murder on the streets of France, and Charlie Hebdo is back in the news. Freedom of expression gets put to the test once again. The Nigerian army says it did not shoot at protesters. There's a problem with that story, though. The evidence is all over the Internet. Malta and the journalistic legacy of the late Daphne Caruana Galizia. Her story is far from complete. Plus, sweaty, topless men posing for the most powerful man in the land. Egyptian police put on a show for the president. Protesters, tens of thousands of them, are back on the streets of France defending freedom of expression. It's been almost six years since gunmen attacked journalists at the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, killing eight of them. It's taken that long for the case to go to trial. And that has coincided with the shocking killing of a schoolteacher beheaded last week after showing caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad to his students. When these kinds of stories make news in France, one term keeps coming up, laïcité, a strict form of secularism that's enshrined in French law, ensuring the separation of church and state. That law was drawn up back in 1905 with the Catholic Church in mind. Over the decades, though, laïcité has been transformed into a tool that's been used to justify bigotry and paint people of all faiths, but especially Muslims, as threats to the Republic. And the coverage of this topic in the French news media has left plenty to be desired. Our starting point this week is Paris. La police découvre le corps décapité de la victime. As gruesome as the details of the murder were, the decapitation of a French teacher on a street just by his high school. The context is an integral aspect of this story. The killing took place a month into the Charlie Hebdo trial. 14 suspects in the dock. Alleged accomplices in the murders of eight journalists at the magazine in 2015. An atrocity that brought millions of protesters onto the streets. The teacher, Samuel Paty, was beheaded by an 18-year-old Chechen refugee for showing his students cartoons from Charlie Hebdo, including caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in a lesson about free speech. Suddenly, on the streets of Paris, it's 2015 all over again. It's a horrible, absolutely horrible crime. There is no word I can um, use to explain how horrific that murder is. But it falls into a conflict which is the absolute necessity to protect free speech, which is a constitutional uh, principle, as well as uh, the respect of French citizens of different backgrounds. And that's something that has been unresolved for decades. And unfortunately, we are uh, seeing the results of it. No one will condone such, such crimes. I think you, you can't find anyone. What has changed is that there's been, of course, lots of debates around uh, those cartoons. 
is it uh, acceptable to mock uh, religions and beyond the prophet and religion what it means is it fair now to to ostracize and mock sometimes very cruel and crude terms the worshippers themselves là il y a une erreur majeure it's a mistake to say france is islamophobic the muslim culture is respected especially because of our colonial past However, what could be mistaken for Islamophobia is the fact that we can critique religions. We critique Islam the same way that we do Catholicism or Protestantism. We can discuss every religion and ideology rationally. This debate over religion and its place in French society goes back to the early 1900s, when the role of the Catholic Church was the issue du jour. The post-revolutionary republic, mindful of the influence the church wielded over its young democracy, took legal steps to keep it at bay. In 1905, it passed the Laïcité Law, which imposed religious neutrality on all state institutions and the civil service. Decades passed, demographics shifted. France now has the largest Muslim population in Europe, a legacy of its colonial past in Africa. The laïcité law, the secular approach France has taken, has led to the passage of other laws, including one passed in 2004 that banned students from wearing any religious symbols in school. Written in the post-9-11 era, that law was widely perceived to be aimed at Muslim students and the headscarves, the hijabs they wore. La liberté d'expression est une des modalités garanties par le cadre laïque de la République. These days, when the French media cover news stories where secularism and free speech intersect, laïcité is a constant contextual factor. Laïcité is one of the pillars of modern French political culture. Uh, it is not simply a law of separation between the state and religious organization. It's a whole culture. French people accept religion if it remains in the home or a place of worship, which is a very strict implementation of the secular principle that doesn't exist anywhere else. The word laïcité, it's become a kind of buzzword. People try to use it to sort of um, push forward a political agenda. So of course it has come forward again uh, following this assassination last week. For some, it is yet another sign or evidence that some people in France can't and don't want to integrate, they don't share our values. The curse of laïcité is how not only it is misunderstood. Since the 90s, the notion has been weaponized to target Muslims and to remove them from the public visibility. It started with the famous headscarf affairs which led to the adoption of the law of 2004 on the prohibition of religious signs in public schools, targeting the hijab. It's not only normalized, but it's also mainstreamed, especially those 24-7 news channels. Basically, we do have now French Fox News, uh, which um, display this kind of uh, narrative. That would be CNews, a news channel that seems to be tilting further to the right by the day. Its most outspoken contributor is Eric Zemmour. 
Bundling the immigration debate with flagrant Islamophobia, he recently said this of unaccompanied minors migrating to France. Ils sont voleurs, ils sont assassins, ils sont violeurs, c'est tout ce qu'ils sont. Il faut les renvoyer. France's television watchdog, the CSA, launched an investigation, which is unlikely to trouble Zamour. He's already been convicted of hate speech three times, and every weeknight, CNews provides him with a platform. Elsewhere in the French media, anti-Muslim sentiment, cloaked under a veil of secularism, is common. It's visible in the kind of interviewees and analysts they favor, sometimes in the journalists they hire, such as Judith Weintraub, a print reporter at Le Figaro, who showed her true colors recently when she saw a young Muslim female blogger online. The blogger wasn't even talking about politics. She was sharing budget-friendly recipes with university students. So she's wearing a headscarf, and a French journalist retweeted 9-11, associating her hijab with this horrific terrorist attack in New York on 9-11. This journalist was invited in every single uh, news network to discuss the case. And this uh, Muslim woman blogger had to shut down her Twitter account because of the threats she received. If you want to pinpoint a, a typical French culture war, you just concentrate on laïcité. L'idée de fabriquer mm. un islam de France, pour moi, est une idée contraire Pourquoi? à l'idée que je me fais de la laïcité. You've got on the one hand those who are now using laïcité against a community and a religion, i.e. Islam. Arrêtons de stigmatiser au nom de la croyance. Whereas others clearly uh, do not uh, accept this interpretation of laïcité. So whenever some media and again in a minority, dare to express uh, some, some mild criticism of this sort of ostracizing, you know, category of the population. It's very, very hard because you have a lot of people in the social media uh, will be harassing you. That is the ultimate contradiction in the discourse surrounding the murder of the school teacher and the Charlie Hebdo story. Critics of the magazine, who argue that free speech has its limits, find themselves accused of sympathizing with murderers. As Charlie Hebdo's lawyer put it in court, those critics are intellectuals with blood on their hands. And the magazine has always described itself as an equal opportunity offender. It would be wrong to say that Charlie Hebdo is against Islam. I can show you a series of cartoons that demonstrate that Catholicism, Protestantism and Judaism are all equally critiqued. It's a satirical newspaper. I can't say its cartoons always make me laugh, but it's become a symbol for freedom of speech, so I have to defend it. You could even argue that it would be fine to make fun of all religion, and you can say in all honesty that they do too. But you see really that religion, and specifically Islam, uh, has become a very uh, central topic in uh, the discourse of the journal. Not only on the religion, but on the people, which is also problematic in terms of freedom of speech and, and freedom of expression. It has become virtually impossible to 
uh, criticize Charlie Hebdo. And that's the problem, because I think if Charlie Hebdo can mock everything, why can't we be free in the name of freedom of speech that we don't like Charlie Hebdo? As for the Charlie Hebdo legal case, the trial continues, as does the national debate over what can or cannot be said, what images should or should not be shown, and whether a law written in the year 1905 is still fit for purpose in the France of 2020. Nigerians have been protesting against police brutality, and this past week, demonstrators were shot at live rounds, this time by the Nigerian army. Minakshi Ravi's been following this story for us. Mina, with video of the shootings all over social media, how has the military defended its tactics in this case? Outright denial, Richard. It's quite stunning, actually, given that the video evidence online is overwhelming. This past Tuesday, Nigerian soldiers moved into a suburb of Lagos, where protesters were defying a curfew. Witnesses say CCTV was disabled, the street lamps were cut out, and that the area was barricaded before the firing began. As a result, so many of the videos you see online are pitch black. All you can hear is the firing. Now, the day after this incident, the Nigerian army tweeted screenshots of articles from a number of news outlets, including the New York Times and Reuters, with the words fake news in red right across them. They said that they weren't even in the area. So it didn't help, therefore, when the state governor of Lagos, Baba Jide Sanwo Olu, went on social media to say that he had visited those who were injured and that soldiers had indeed been in the area. So much of the documentation of this story, the reporting of it, has been on social media as opposed to the mainstream news media. Why is that? Well, these protests actually got their start online. About three weeks ago, a video had been circulating on Twitter and Facebook showing a Nigerian man being shot dead by the special anti-robbery squad, SARS. Now, just like the video of the police killing of George Floyd in the United States earlier this year, uh, this is the video that triggered all those Black Lives Matter protests. This Nigerian video had a similar galvanizing effect. End SARS has been adopted as the hashtag, even though this movement has gone way beyond that. Now, the SARS unit was disbanded on October 11th and has been replaced by a new squad called SWAT. Now, the Nigerian government should have probably worked out that simply changing the acronym from SARS to SWAT was not going to stop the protesters. Nigerians have been pressing right on. They're demanding widespread reform across law enforcement. And they've actually even changed their hashtag. It's now end SWAT. So this looks like a story that will continue for a while. Okay, thanks, Mina. Last week marked the third anniversary of the death of Daphne Caruana Galizia, a Maltese journalist described as a one-woman WikiLeaks. For decades, her reporting exposed organized crime and corruption on the small island state until October of 2017, when she was killed by a bomb planted in her car. Late last year, we learned that powerful figures may have been involved in the killing. Those revelations led to the resignation of the prime minister, among others. Not much else, though, has changed. Two men have been convicted for committing the murder. What's missing are the convictions of the people who ordered it. And the investigation into that has been marred by a lack of transparency and political interference. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on a reporter killed for the work she did and how the late Daphne Caruana Galizia's journalism continues to make news. October 16th, 2017. 
There are crooks everywhere you look now. The situation is desperate. These were the last words ever written by Daphne Caruana Galizia. She was under no illusions. She knew her journalism had made her some serious enemies. For decades, she'd been a thorn in the side of the rich and powerful here in Malta, calling out corruption and organized crime at the highest level. She paid the ultimate price. And that day, my mother and I were sitting at, uh, sitting at the, the big dining table that we used as a desk. It was just before 3 p.m. My mother needed to go to the bank for a meeting about her bank accounts, which had been frozen by the economy minister. And that was the last time I saw her. The sound of the blast, in fact, came very soon. I remember because I was listening to music on my laptop uh, when my mother left the house and when I heard the sound of the explosion, the same song was still playing. I knew it was a bomb straight away. I don't, it's, it's just the sound of it. it. It can't be anything else. Daphne Caruana Galizia was no stranger to breaking big stories. By 2017, her years of reporting on financial corruption had amounted to something extraordinary. Embezzlement on a massive scale, involving some of Malta's most senior political figures, including then Prime Minister Joseph Muscat. To understand this story, here are some of the names you need to know. Keith Skembri, Muscat's chief of staff, Conrad Mitzi, his energy minister, and Jorgen Fenwick, a businessman, one of Malta's richest men. Malta's Prime Minister, Chief of Staff, and Malta's Energy Minister. The first week that they came to power in March 2013, got their accountants to set up for them secret companies in Panama. In parallel with this, these two people, Keith Cambry and Conrad Mitzi, closed the deal with an energy company to provide a new gas power station and the energy coming from it. Daphne Caruana Galicia was piecing together a picture where the owners and the promoters of this project took enormous bribes, $5,000 a day, a corrupt deal which they sought to cover up. Revealing what's become known as the Electrogas deal wasn't the work of a national newspaper or a TV station. It all came from a single journalist. Reporting on an island of less than half a million people, Caruana Galizia's blog regularly attracted upwards of 400,000 readers a day. And since its inception in 2008, the story she broke reshaped the political landscape. Take Pilatus, a secretive bank she discovered was laundering the money of senior officials. Or the passport for cash scheme, lining the pockets of politicians. But when Caruana Galizia started to uncover the level of corruption behind the electrogas deal, some Maltese found it hard to believe. This was Netflix material. And, and, and because, it, because it was like that, we didn't even think it was possible for it to be real. Because it was so surreal at times, we thought this may have been all too big to be true. Maybe that's where some of us were wrong, when we didn't really, really believe everything she said. Mark Lawrence Zemit hosted Sharabank, at the time, Malta's most popular TV show on the public broadcaster. 
As he says, the mainstream media found Caruana Galizia's exposés almost impossible to believe and largely ignored her work. Some outlets were actively hostile. Since much of the media in Malta is dominated by the same political parties, her work exposed. We conducted an investigation for six months into the online hate machine that was run by the Labour Party in government. We managed to gain access to um, secret and closed uh, groups online. Members of these groups included the President of Malta, the Prime Minister of Malta, most of the members of Parliament. People were encouraged to follow her and put photos of her online. She was depicted as a witch and should be burnt at the stake. Daphne uh, was the victim of a dehumanization campaign that lasted um, around 30 years. When I was nine years old, the front door of the house was set on fire. When I was maybe about seven years old, I remember coming home and finding our pet dog on the doorstep with its throat slit. And I just thought that this kind of stuff was normal because my mother was the only journalist I knew. Obviously, I was a kid. It's like 200 meters, more or less. After years of threats, intimidation, and attacks on her and her family, Daphne Caruana Galizia was killed by a bomb planted in her car. We're doing the same drive she did that day. This is the actual bomb site just here to the right. Wow, it really is so close to the house. This is where her killers tried to bury her work to stop the revelatory stories of corruption she was uncovering. And it might have worked, if not for a group of journalists from around the world who've set up something they call the Daphne Project, and they've made it their mission to finish what she started. The biggest scoop then of the Daphne Project was finding who owned the company that was going to pay into the Panama companies of Keech Cambry and Conrad Mitzi, and that was Jorgen Fennec, the person whom Daphne had not named herself, but had started the story that would eventually name him as the person who bribed Keech Cambry and Conrad Mitzi. And then the penny dropped. She revealed the existence of a company called 17 Black. And we now know through uh, investigations that continued after her assassination that 17 Black was owned by uh, Jürgen Fennec, who has now been arrested as the um, mastermind in her assassination. Further revelations have also linked Jürgen Fennec to um, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and other members of government. Remember those names? Jürgen Fennec, arrested. Conrad Mitzi, resigned. Keith Skembri, gone. And then, more than two years after Caruana Galizia's death, the Prime Minister himself was forced out. Now, her revelations are all anyone in the Maltese media can talk about. The chief of staff, the prime minister, all minister, Conrad Mitzi, can say that But it wasn't always that way. There were times when she wasn't right. There were times when her stories were not true. And maybe that is what led many people to believe that, that the big scandals may also have been not completely or entirely true. We're now learning that it was all true. Daphne has generated this wave of new energy, of new, of new interest, which we didn't have before in politics. And so we have people coming together and saying, okay, let's stand up to this because this is not who we are. And that's nice, and that's good.
You say it's worked and it's nice and all this is true, but she lost her life in the process. Of course. That should have never happened. She did lose her life. And as a Maltese people, uh, we realized a little too late. But I believe it's better late than never. But for her supporters, it's not enough. Every night since Caruana and Galizia's death, campaigners and supporters have come here to lay out a candle-lit memorial. It's come to symbolize the growing confrontation between a government trying to hide its guilt and a society calling for the truth to come to light. There will eventually come a time when there will be an opportunity for accountability. And when that time comes, um, we will have to rely on the sort of work that was done by journalists like my mother. And I think that all of this work that she did has really sort of proved her right. Finally, we've long found that some of the most absurd television output comes from state-owned broadcasters. Take Egypt. About a week ago, the graduating class of the police academy put on a show for President Sisi. They showed off their skills and some of their wares. About 1,500 male cadets, many of them bare-chested, buff, sweating it out for the president, all broadcast on state TV. In a country where this year alone nine women have been arrested for posting videos on the TikTok social media app, the charges against them range from the moral to the religious. Perhaps those women could have trained to become police officers. Instead of being arrested for alleged indecency, they too might have been allowed on state-run TV. Or probably not. We'll leave you with the video in question, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. إنما نشاهده الآن لا يؤكد وبحق أن أجهزة الأمن تسعى بخطى ثابتة نحو التقدم والرقي لتواكب بأجهزتها ورجالها ما تشهده مصر من تقدم على درب التنمية وتحقيق الرخاء.